Hello and welcome to the Traumanomics Podcast, a place where we discuss a wide range of topics emphasizing healing, change, and growth for abuse survivors. Drawing from personal and professional experiences, we'll discuss issues openly for those in helping positions such as parents, educators, health and mental health professionals, and members of law enforcement. This is Dr. Chris Bertelson. Chris is a survivor, educator, and author. As a teenager, Chris was a target of a notorious child molester in his hometown, a man who went on to abduct and murder one of the victims. This abduction case went unsolved for 27 years. Chris was instrumental in helping bring attention to the cases, which were eventually solved in 2016. And this is Jordan Howard. Jordan is a therapist here in Arkansas with extensive experience working with abuse victims and males in particular. In addition, Jordan works with couples and people with addictions. Together, we hope to share stories and commentary of resilience and healing in a caring and lighthearted way, bringing attention to issues of abuse, addiction, and the effects on individuals and society. Hey everybody, welcome to the Traumanomics Podcast, the place where men talk about stuff men don't talk about. And we are going to pick up with Jared Shirell here regarding the 2010 investigation of one of the suspects, I'm sorry, not suspect, person of interest, as they referred to him originally, in the Wetterling abduction case. Jared, just before you start, I just want to say, I remember sitting at my desk and seeing on internet news or TV news that they had excavated part of Rassier's farm place. And I remember having this really sinking feeling that, what are you doing investigating this guy? And if you're going to investigate anywhere, you ought to go to Painesville. Um, that was my uh, feeling at that time, you know, and uh, having gone through what we did here in Painesville, I just didn't feel they had exhausted that possibility. Right. Um, so that good, and it's a great point because that was at this point in time, I was an observer watching an investigation take place. And, you know, I had given statements and testimonies in regards to what I believed was uh, relevant to solving my particular case, finding my individual. And I was working with or had worked with a number of people expressed time and time again how I felt and believed that Jacob's case and my case were associated. But I also want to go back to 2004. At that point in time, when I was talking to new lead investigators and they were going over reviewing uh, case files, they had one point said to me that they didn't necessarily believe that my case was associated with Jacob's case. And they, they were looking at other suspects that I had dismissed, and Dan Razier was uh, that particular person at that time. And at the same time, there was a side of me that says, well, you know, prove me wrong. Put somebody in custody. Find the person responsible. Right, like or the... even more importantly, find the person responsible in my case right. for my assault. Right. And and we'll go from them. It's like the I'm reminded of these people that set up the booth, you know, that have some saying on it and it says, Convince me otherwise. You see that Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so that's so that's you at this so point. So I, I yeah, I watched that kind of go on and it went on for quite a period of time. I I, I specifically remember it kinda it wreaked havoc on, on his 
life as well. Nobody likes to be labeled a pedophile if they're not guilty of it. It will destroy your reputation, destroy whatever people may have thought about you or who you are. They will perceive that you are of a vicious nature, a monster in some aspects, but with, you know, guilty through the public eye. Just right, by, just the perception. Yep, right. just being associated with this case. He wasn't the only one that I watched, you know, their family be uprooted. Uh, there was one particular guy who I suggested to law enforcement back in 1989 that it resembled this particular person. At that time, it was a sixth grade teacher, and I said it resembled that person. And they started questioning him to the point where he had moved his family out of town. I mean, it it definitely took a toll on a lot more people than I even imagined. And at the same time, after that incident, I was very, very cautious about who I indicated as far as being or resembling the perpetrator responsible for my attack. So it was that time, I think, Joy Baker had started, um, she had came across the case or was paying attention to the Dan Rassier investigation. And, and he, she had interviewed him uh, and spoke to him back in 2000 and 2010 and started wanting to understand the details of, of this case. So leading up to that, um, Joy Baker uh, was a blogger from the New London area, which is about eight to ten miles away from where I live now. And she just had this curiosity, just had this constantly seeking and trying to understand necessary details. So this is the way I like to say it. And out of the blue, uh, she had contacted me, I believe in July of 2013, she had contacted me and again asked if I was the Cold Spring boy associated with the Jacob Wetterling case. And I again asked her how she had learned or came across my identity. Word gets around fast, apparently, here, right? <laughs> yeah. It's hard to... <laughs> and, and, but she was very meticulous at what she did and how she did it. So she uh, took my age at that point in time, realized that I, you know, I was almost a 40-year-old man, uh, and took a stab in the dark, um, Pretty much, there was me and one other guy that that were possible people associated with it, and and she had called me and I began talking to her in great detail about what I felt were relevant details in the case and how I was associated with it. When she began blogging and writing that down and sharing those details, I was very skeptical about how what I wanted really. Put out in the public realm understandably my privacy right. again i'm still maintaining my privacy there is still a level of fear at this time this per this guy may still be out there and could possibly come back and not only hurt me but my family as well so joy was very much aware of that very respectful of that and i appreciated that we eventually came into or came across the Painesville articles detailing the 1985-87 assaults that happened in Painesville. And 
soon as I came across those articles that lit a fire that pushed me to to no end in finding closure to this long-awaited case, my case in particular. You know, it, it, I could recognize details in the Painesville cases, and after speaking to one of the first victims I came across, I I had realized that this was the perpetrator responsible in my attack as well. And I relayed that to the authorities. I relayed that to a number of people, anybody who was interested in helping at that point. It was an open book. If you had a desire to help, there was no closed doors on my side. I allowed everybody and anybody to look at what I thought were relevant details and finding the person responsible. And so what's really interesting here, and, you know, we've talked about this obviously a lot, but those details were all in the police reports. They were all in law enforcement's hands for 30 years, you know, and it's, I find that really interesting that you had never heard of it. Well, there was a number of things. I mean, I think what, what came on and, and, um, I'm just going to reference Dwayne Allen Hart at this time. He was a known perpetrator who was arrested and convicted in 1990. And I named him in the police report. Yep, yep. Yeah. You had brought the tip. And, and, right. and then I had also spoke to, uh, there were five victims in his civil case that had put him away on a civil commitment. I had spoke to the first victim that came forward who was very, very informative in regards to what Painesville was before I even moved to Painesville. And right. he had some very horrible, disturbing accounts of not only being a victim, but just sad and sad and, and upsetting that he wasn't apprehended at a much sooner time. Yeah, absolutely. The guy was notorious right. for right. victimizing a number mm-hmm. of kids. Yes. So at that point, twenty five years had gone by. Now we're you know we're we're at the twenty five year mark, and, and we're actively seeking. We're actually putting articles out in the paper. I'm pleading for any other victims to come forward and pointing out that I felt that my case and Painesville cases are of the same nature and possibly could be associated with the Wetterling case. Which they had thought all along. Early on, yeah. Right. The, the you know, the lead investigator, right. yeah, FBI, yeah. right away. But again, in 2004, when, when they had dismissed the idea of the two being associated for whatever reason, in eliminating speculation or whatever direction they were going, uh, there were many years wasted there. So, again, go back to the statistical nature of crimes like this. The, the statistics would suggest that two crimes this similar and then a third series of crimes this similar in a neighboring town, it's just about mathematically impossible that they're not, that they're really not related. Correct. And then there, but then I think maybe the, the, the confusion in part because Dewey Hart had a known record of assaulting juvenile boys and Danny Heinrich had somewhat of a clean record. He had some theft and some other petty crimes, but nothing that indicated that he was a pedophile by nature. However, they did, we later found out that they did have some evidence early on in the case that could have easily 
linked him. What I view as circumstantial evidence regarding my case, it just got put aside to some aspect. Maybe because they weren't investing my investigating my case, they were investigating Jacob's case. But the you know my case was very much relevant to to Jacob's case and, and maybe should have been given a little more attention earlier on so that we all didn't have to go through this long period of time in trying to decades <laughs> yeah, right? in, yeah, decades yeah in, yes. in order to to gain closure right in this you know case so the Rassier's farm dig up the farm find nothing you come in 2013 you and i talk in november of 13 they had just they were wrapping up i think they exhausted a lot of resources and taxpayer money on yes on investigating Dan Rossier. Right. Um, so you come in and you you with you find out about Painesville, you have this new vigor, this passion to figure out what's going on. You're reaching out to news media, to other victims, and what's the break in the case? The, I know the FBI agent Chris Bokers pieces it all together, ex- exhausts all the mm, police reports. Okay. So Right away we go we go to Stearns County. Uh, Joy and I, uh, we, had, uh, me personally, sat down with the lead investigators, Stearns County investigators, and possibly a BCA investigator too at the time. But I pointed out relevant details that I felt were important, and time just continued to roll on. It just never nothing was happening fast enough, in my opinion. That time. From 2013 to the arrest in 2015, you know, for two years, nothing was happening fast enough because I just felt like, you know, the time was already against us. Right. We were up against the wall. If this person was out there, if he was responsible, we got to act now. Like, if we're never going to get Everybody's our getting old. Yep. Right. We're never yeah. going to find our answer if we don't find it at this point. Right. And we came back and forth and... It eventually led to some FBI cold case investigators getting involved and and hearing again uh, more testimony of my accounts in regards to the 1989 to to the present day and why I felt the Paysville cases were relevant in understanding the perpetrator responsible for my case. I kept on, I always referenced my case because there was still those that believed that my case was not associated with Jacob's case. And some aspect, they were quick to dismiss it, especially after 20 some years, because A, they didn't really understand all the details early on. And you can't blame them. I mean, a lot of time had passed. Um, and the other thing was just, I think it, it, it became like a, a taboo topic to even talk about because so much time. And I remember people telling me, just, kid, just let this go. You know, just, you got to let this go. It's affecting your work. It's affecting just a number of things. And you're just. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because the answer is, yes, you're right. It's affecting my work. It's affecting my family. It's affecting everything. Absolutely. Yes, you're right. It does affect everything. Absolutely. And it doesn't go away. And it doesn't go away. No. And that's what, but there was still this fire inside of me and said, I'm going to, I want to find this guy. Like he's out there. If these other victims don't know his identity or they don't have any other 
uh, suspects or people of interest that they think law enforcement should look into than what else was known. You know, the, what was the, um, how do I want to say, the exploratory evidence that was being withheld. I mean, the, the, these case files were so massive, 50,000 case files, I think, or something or other. And the exploratory evidence through the course of all of these in, investigations later learned that there was a lot of details that were overlooked. And so you enjoy I don't it. say that in a disrespective way. I just, no. I'm just pointing the obvious, uh, pointing to the obvious that it could have, closure could have came a lot sooner. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know. So you and Joy go to Stearns County. Then you go to Esme Murphy, right? On Channel 4? Esme Murphy, coincidentally. Yeah, she was a Channel 4 investigative reporter. Uh, she's great. And was, again, very respectful. She caught wind of these Painesville cases. And she wanted to do a story before, you know, it was fall of 2013 when she had learned about it. And I said, I kind of put my foot down and said, this is... New information to me. You got to allow us more time before you go out there and exploit this story. She asked me to interview on it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And, she, and I was like, you can't just put this out there right now because I felt like not all the victims were questioned thoroughly at this point. If the perpetrator's out there, he'd be catching wind of this, and God knows what could happen to that. Again, the, the privacy and fear on my side. Um, and eventually we did a story early 2014 with Esme in detailing all, all the uh, Painesville cases and joy in our work together. At that point, I had already met you as well. And just a, a great number of people, a great number of people who came together who helped resolve this long-awaited mystery. So the DNA, they run DNA. Uh, no, so there was a point where I was interviewing with the FBI investigators and I sat down. I was very frustrated with these lack of follow-up on local law enforcement. And again, nothing was moving fast enough, but this investigator had come and asked me to talk to him. And he started, he was going over the entire case file. So he was referencing things early on in 1989 and he started explaining this to me i was sitting in his car and i got upset at that point and and asked him if he was <laughs> it there was so many thoughts going through my head but it was just for me to be reassured that he was an independent investigator looking to solve this case rather than an investigator working with stearns county and looking to solve this case. I mean, granted, we will probably wouldn't have been able to reach this conclusion without a combined effort from all law enforcement agencies that had silos of information pertaining to these cases. But I was sitting in his car and I specifically asked him to, to get me the original police report that I had filled out on the night of January 13th, 1989. And he said he would do that for me. And a month or two had gone by, a while had gone by. So he had asked that the 
sweatshirt be retested and specifically look for DNA. And that's when they came across the DNA that matched Danny Heinrich. And they also had a hair sample from back in 1989 when they had first interviewed Danny Heinrich. And he evaded all questions and lawyered up or whatever the circumstances were there. He got away. And um, the hat from and the, the hat. assault. There was the, yeah, the, the pains was after assault. me. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, yeah. So there was a number of things that they became aware of. The light started to shine on what was relevant. That was early 2015. So to give you a reference point, January 13th, 2015, 25 years had passed in my original assault. 25 years, I believe, is one of the standards of the statutes of limitations in these cases. So a few more months had passed. They'd gotten a search warrant, and they made the arrest uh, right around November of 2015. And he went to the sentencing was November of 16. Correct. So yeah. another so year. Another so year. He right. was held in Sherburne County right. under right. federal pornography charges, which right. they obtained in the search, or which they came across having gotten a search warrant pertaining to my case. You know, right. all the details pertaining to that search warrant were relevant for a criminal trial in my case. But when they made the arrest, they also briefed me before the arrest, as well as the Wetterling family. But they had pointed out that statutes of limitations existed in my case, and I was obviously upset because I had exhausted a lot of time, effort, and in trying to help them come to this conclusion. And I just felt re-victimized in, right. in a lot of senses. And I, Although I was very upset, there was still this level of curiosity and wanting to know was he responsible for Jacob's case as well, for Jacob's disappearance as well. So, so what we're going to do, we're going to finish up here with this episode, and we're going to come right back, and in the fifth episode, we're going to talk about the case, the 2016 sentencing, and the civil court case judgment that you won against Danny Heinrich. How does that sound? That's all good. All right. Thank you, everybody. We will be back with you uh, with our last installment here, or our next installment with Jared Shiro. This podcast is made available by Upstart Resilience, LLC, for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the subject matter. This podcast is not designed to give specific professional advice. By using this podcast, you understand there is no counselor-client relationship or any other professional relationship between you and the hosts. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent professional advice from a licensed professional in your state.